no real secret formula for success. Qualities like determination, grit, resilience, a desire to constantly improve, and a healthy dose of sheer luck are all obvious components of a successful person. But there's another portion of that formula that often comes into play, and I'm sure you've heard some iteration of it before. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Today's subject may never have had a career to begin with without his well-placed connections, people he was tied to, and people he shackled. His brother married into a wealthy and powerful Virginia family, allowing him to get a job as a surveyor, and eventually a central role in the military. His own marriage created one of the richest families in the state of Virginia, increasing their ownership of several tracts of land, farms, and slaves. As contradictory as it may sound, the man who led our nation to supposed freedom also owned north of 300 slaves in his lifetime. The ownership of those humans, laboring in bondage, allowed him to amass the wealth and financial stature that propelled him onto the national political stage. It's an uncomfortable truth to consider, but ignoring it would just be willfully ignorant. Did our first president profit off the buying and selling of human beings? Yep, the entire country did, in fact. First by enriching Great Britain and the colonies, and then really enriching the United States especially in the South. Should we shy away from addressing the role of slavery in this man's life and the life of our country? No way. In order to put our best foot forward as informed citizens, in my view at least, it's best to learn all there is to know. Not just the heroics and the grandeur, but the murky reality of it all. The hard truths. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The man was, as many people are, complex, to say the least. He was a surveyor, a soldier, a slave owner, an active participant in the slave trade. He was a planter, a politician, a devoted husband whose wife was his greatest companion. He was also an activist, and perhaps the most important figure in securing the formation of the United States of America. His name, of course, is George Washington. And this is Rebellion. March of 1758, George Washington would travel to Williamsburg to see a physician named John Ameson. He had been suffering from dysentery, or to put it frankly, bloody diarrhea. Luckily, 
After his consultation, the good doctor assured George that the infection had run its course. He was in recovery. What better time to fall in love than after hearing that you won't be having bloody diarrhea anymore? Am I right? Staying with a friend after receiving Dr. Ameson's prognosis, he was introduced to Martha Dandridge Custis, a wealthy, widowed mother of two. Her late husband had been Daniel Custis, one of the wealthiest men in Virginia, thanks in large part to land holdings and, you guessed it, slave ownership. Having control of a vast estate, including a mansion in New Kent County, Martha had many suitors vying for her affections. But marriage in the 18th century was far more transactional than it is today. Oftentimes, it operated as little more than a financial agreement or a business contract. The match with Martha was so favorable to Washington that some of his contemporaries wondered if it made his career. Most notably John Adams, who asked in a letter to John Taylor, quote, would Washington had ever been commander of the Revolutionary Army or President of the United States if he had not married the rich widow of Mr. Custis? Though this match may very well have rested on an economic and social foundation, it soon blossomed into a great pairing Martha would go on to form a strong bond with her husband, and the two would become best friends and confidants in the years to come. In a sad twist of fate, George and Martha would never have kids of their own, apart from raising the two from her previous marriage. Many historians believe that Washington was sterile. If true, it is most likely due to the trip he took to Bermuda as a younger man. In a desperate attempt to save his brother Lawrence's life, who had been battling tuberculosis, George contracted smallpox. He survived despite permanent facial scarring and, according to historians, sterility. It may have been an easier pill to swallow had the voyage to Bermuda not ended in failure because Lawrence's condition worsened and he died soon after their return. In the years after their marriage, George and Martha lived the life of wealthy southern planters. They resided at Mount Vernon, where they owned over 300 slaves in their lifetimes. Slavery played a major role in Washington's life. He became a slave owner at the young age of 11, when his father passed away and left him a small farm and 10 slaves. He would purchase more throughout his life, 15 more by the time he was 23. After marrying Martha, he acquired the 84 slaves left to her in her former husband's will. And between that time and the outbreak of the revolution, they would buy an additional 40 slaves. Rather than being an unfortunate reality of the time that everyone accepted, slavery was hotly debated throughout Washington's life. When he was born, slavery in the southern colonies was already a full-fledged and vital industry. By the time he was 22, 
almost 30% of all men and women in Fairfax County, where he lived, were enslaved. The way he treated his slaves is somewhat contested. Most sources from that time seem to paint a picture of humane treatment at Mount Vernon, especially from Martha, since at least one slave threatened to report an overseer to Martha in response to his cruelty. Even George himself wrote critically of his fellow slave owners, who, in his opinion, did not treat their slaves kindly enough. However, one of his neighbors, Richard Parkinson, once wrote that Washington, quote, treated his slaves with more severity than any other man. This could be evidence that Washington sometimes abused his slaves, and did so at least once in this man's presence. It may also mean that he demanded more work out of his slaves than others, and not necessarily insinuated violence. But whether or not Washington himself ever abused a slave, we know for sure that his overseers did. In 1793, he wrote to an overseer named Anthony Whitting, complimenting him on a job well done after flogging a slave named Charlotte. Though he remained a slave owner from the age of 11 until his death at age 67, Washington became more and more convinced that abolishing slavery was essential to the promise of liberty in America. He did not, however, go very far in realizing his abolitionist views. There he was, a slave owner, who saw quite clearly the inhumanity of the practice. Yet he constantly reminded those around him that the only way to get rid of it would be through legislative action and that any other means would be detrimental. Though he had several opportunities to take a firm stance against it, perhaps hastening its end, he continually deferred to the status quo, unwilling to take the political risk of opposing it. Many at the time believed that the southern colonies would revolt if slavery was ever struck down. History would eventually prove them right, but Washington did little to stop it. So, while the man can certainly be celebrated for his poise in combat, his leadership ability, and his commanding presence, there is no doubt that he had been elevated to a position of power on the backs of enslaved Africans. He had inherited slaves from his father, married into a large slave-owning family, and became one of Virginia's wealthiest planters due to the forced labor of those same slaves. Later in life, George would free all of his 300-plus slaves in his will, allowing for their manumission after the death of his wife, Martha. He was the only founding father to do this, but much like the country as a whole, most of his life was made possible thanks to the institution of slavery. This illustrates the most fundamental contradiction of the entire revolution and foundation of America, a fight for freedom 
by a colony of slaveholders. As Thomas Day, a noted English abolitionist, would so pointedly contend in 1776, quote, If there be an object truly ridiculous in nature, it is an American patriot signing resolutions of independency with one hand, and with the other, brandishing a whip over his affrighted slaves. While living at Mount Vernon in the years before the Revolution, George Washington would become active in politics. He was a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses, where he would support actions against unfair British tax laws, laws that, in effect, were passed to help repay the debt incurred from the very conflict Washington sparked and led, the French and Indian War. He helped lead the charge in Virginia in boycotting British goods, which helped keep his name in consideration when the colonists would look for a leader down the road. In 1774, Washington helped lead the effort to respond to the growing unrest stemming from punishing British tax laws. A group of wealthy, land-holding Virginians met to discuss possible courses of action. George Mason, one of the attendees, drafted what became known as the Fairfax Resolves, a document that opposed Britain's claim of supreme authority over the colonies. Though it didn't go so far as to declare independence, as Thomas Jefferson's document would a year later, it was a powerful and radical move on the part of those involved. It called for further boycott of British goods, outlined their basic rights, and even called for an end to the slave trade, saying, quote, no slaves ought to be imported into any of the British colonies on this continent, and we take this opportunity of declaring our most earnest wishes to see an entire stop forever put to such a wicked, cruel, and unnatural trade. resolutions were passed across more than 30 counties in Virginia. After it passed, showing immense opposition to the British, the First Continental Congress was convened, with representatives from all but one of the 13 colonies in attendance. George Washington was among the men present. He was selected for the First Continental Congress after the Fairfax Resolves. The group hoped that an organized petition from colonial leaders would persuade the king and parliament to repeal the coercive acts, which were referred to as the intolerable acts in America. The petition was sent in October of 1774. Six months later, after Britain refused to change their stance, shots were fired in Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. War had come to the colonies. This time, when the Second Continental Congress was convened, Washington arrived in full military garb, signaling to all in attendance that he was ready for war. When it came time to select a commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, 
George Washington was the obvious choice. He accepted his post with the utmost humility and grace. First, he made a promise to those assembled, saying, quote, I will enter upon the momentous duty and exert every power I possess in their service and for support of the glorious cause. Thanking the committee for considering him, he continued humbly, I beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in the room that I this day declare with the utmost sincerity I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. He concluded his remarks by declining the offer of a paid salary and gave his most cordial thanks. It seemed clear to everyone in attendance that he was the right choice for command. Aside from his military experience and the fact that he was a southerner, which would persuade the southern colonies to stay united with the north, he possessed a level of integrity that few could match. In turning down a salary, he made it clear that his cause was independence, not fame or financial gain. By asserting that he did not find himself deserving of the command, he let it be known that his countrymen would be placed above his own ego. The stage was set for Washington to make an indelible impression on the American colonies. Just days after being unanimously selected for duty, he departed for Massachusetts. He would assume command of a ragtag group of untrained volunteer soldiers, militiamen who signed up in the name of liberty, for adventure, for steady pay, or for fame. He would soon find out, however, that much more than a patriotic spirit would be needed to organize that motley militia into a force that could challenge one of the mightiest armies on earth. Now, it may seem that George was the type of man who thirsted for battlefield glory. As a younger man, that may have been true. However, in studying his letters at the time, it appears he felt equally, if not more so, drawn to a more peaceful role as husband and planter. Throughout the war, and even his eventual presidency, he seemed to pine for the years when he and Martha could settle down once more at Mount Vernon and live the rest of their years in idyllic harmony. But it would not be so. After 16 years together, war would rip Washington from his wife and home. Though he accepted his role as commander with a plum and dedicated himself to the cause, the lure of country life always pulled at him. Sadly, from the time the war broke out, he would only spend six out of his remaining 24 years at home with Martha. His feelings about leaving are best expressed in a letter he wrote to his wife shortly after being chosen as Commander-in-Chief. It reads, My dearest, I am now set down to write you on a subject which fills me with inexpressible concern, and this concern is greatly aggravated and increased when I reflect upon the uneasiness I know it will give you. 
It has been determined in Congress that the whole army raised for the defense of the American cause shall be put under my care, and that it is necessary for me to proceed immediately to Boston to take upon the command of it. You may believe me when I assure you in the most solemn manner that so far from seeking this appointment, I have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it, not only from my unwillingness to part with you and the family, but from a consciousness of it being a trust too great for my capacity, and that I should enjoy more real happiness and felicity in one month with you at home than I have the most distant prospect of reaping abroad. In the next section, Washington expressed both his hesitancy to leave, his sadness in parting from his wife, but also his confidence in his surviving the war. I shall rely, therefore, confidently, he wrote, on that providence which has heretofore preserved and been bountiful to me. Not doubting that I shall return safe to you in the fall, I shall feel no pain from the toil or the danger of the campaign. My unhappiness will flow from the uneasiness I know you will feel at being left alone. I therefore beg of you to summon your whole fortitude and resolution and pass your time as agreeably as possible. Nothing will give me so much sincere satisfaction as to hear this and to hear it from your own pen. To close the letter, he informed Martha of some legal steps he took in his absence that must have had a chilling effect on both of them. As life is always uncertain, he wrote, I have, since I came to this place, got Colonel Pendleton to draft a will for me by the directions which I gave him, which I now enclose, the provision made for you in case of my death will, I hope, be agreeable. In the weeks to come, Washington would discover but a shadow of an army, tattered, disorganized, untrained, poorly fed, and even more poorly equipped. Though the cause for which he fought was the righteous one in his mind, it must have also seemed hopeless when he arrived in Boston. And though the colonists would squeak out a victory by outlasting and expelling the British from Boston using siege tactics, the situation would deteriorate beyond everyone's expectations in just a year's time. It wouldn't be long before members of Congress and others in the Continental Army began demanding George Washington's removal. Whispers would abound, some louder than others, that the general's strategic shortcomings were driving the war effort toward ruin. So what happened to turn it around? How did he successfully navigate such treacherous waters to cement a colossal military legacy, leaving the choice for first U.S. president all but predetermined? To find out, tune in next time for more of George Washington and Rebellion.
Rebellion was produced by me, Dustin Connors. If you want to help support the show, one of the best and easiest things you can do is give it a rating on iTunes or even write a review. If we receive more ratings, we can welcome in new listeners. For more on this and other great stories, visit rebellionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.